Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. Uh, welcome back to me because I've not been around for two or three weeks. Uh, it's been a little while. Thank you for your patience. Uh, I won't bore you with it all too much because uh, those that do know are bored of hearing about it. But I came back from holiday a week and a half ago. Intended to release this episode, record it and release it uh, last Wednesday, but I came down with tonsillitis, so um, I'm pretty much fully recovered now, but I couldn't, I just couldn't do it, so massive apologies. Um, good news is that Bethan is back for good next week, um, which is really exciting, and we met up about a month ago, and we've got loads of really exciting plans for the podcast and for Patreon and what we offer over there as well. Um, so watch this space. There's loads of really exciting stuff coming up. Um, so yeah, fill your boots. Um, okay, thanks to our most recent Patreon supporters. We have Rachel Nelson, Kelly Weyers, Marie Bird, who works for me. Um, thank you so much, Marie, for uh, your support. You really didn't have to. Um, and I, I never talk about the podcast at work. I, nobody knew that I did it. And then somebody else in my team, Tanya, who's an avid listener now, uh, discovered it on Spotify and then sent me a message and said, is this you? Uh, so the secret's out now. And Tanya's another Patreon supporter. So I, I promise I don't force all of the people that work with me, A, to listen to it or B, to sign up to Patreon. But thank you for uh, for the support, Marie, and also Tanya as well. Uh, so we also have Christina Rosenek, Judith Whittle, Shezaron, David Threlfall, Tracy Grant, Ellie Ridley, Wendy Hay, Rebecca Hazlitt, and also these two people who signed up annually. Uh, you get a 10% discount if you do that. So that's Catherine Millward and Rachel Sargent. Thank you to each and every one of you. And of course, thanks to our existing Patreon supporters too. If you work for me and you're listening to this, then I would suggest that you sign up to Patreon because that's a done thing. Otherwise, if you're listening to this and you want a taste of what these guys are having, then you can just head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Your support through Patreon really helps to ensure that we're around for a long time, not just a good time. This week we explore a case that has long been up there amongst Britain's most well-known and puzzled over missing persons cases. Susanna Jane Lamplew, better known of course as Susie, was a British estate agent who was reported missing on the 28th of July in 1986 after she apparently disappeared into thin air in broad daylight after talking to a mysterious man in the middle of a residential street in London. The case is obviously exceptionally well known, you've probably heard of it, so it's not much of a spoiler to say that Susie has never been found. She has been officially declared dead since the mid-90s. More than three decades have passed since the day Susie vanished, and we still have no clear idea as to why she went missing, what happened to her, or who was ultimately responsible for her probable murder. However, that is not to say that police are lacking in clues, nor does it suggest that the case is lacking in some highly compelling circumstantial evidence, or more importantly, or more specifically, in suspects. In fact, as we'll go into in further detail soon, the police officers and detectives who worked the Susie Lamplew case remain convinced that they know full well who committed the alleged killing. The problem is that they can't definitively pin this on their suspect. 
Now, despite the enormous amount of time that's passed since Susie went missing, the police are still convinced that there are living people out there who may know something that could help. And thus, they remain mildly optimistic that Susie's case may still be solved to this day. So, with that undercurrent of hope and optimism, let's take a deep dive into this case and explore what we do know. In the summer of 1986, the London property market was in the early stages of a sudden and rapid boom. House prices had increased by almost 20% in the space of a year, and new builds were popping up left, right and centre. And so, the writing was on the wall for the emerging generation. A career in real estate was really the key to making a fortune. And some people really did make huge money at this time. It wasn't uncommon for an estate agent to be earning six figures in the mid-80s. When Susie Lamplew applied for a job as an estate agent with a firm called Sturgis & Sons in the affluent London borough of Fulham, she noted with joy and enthusiasm in her diary, I've been hired on the spot. Through subsequent diary entries, Susie revealed that her bosses had put her at a desk next to the shop window, and they did little to hide the fact that it was because they viewed her as the most attractive female in the office. That's just how it is, Susie scribbled in the journal, in a stark reminder of how women were seen in the workplace back in the mid-80s. She was viewed as the most attractive female, and therefore she was put on display for any man to see. And, as un-PC as this is, I kind of get it. At just 25 years old, Susie was young, intelligent, and evidently great at her job. She was friendly and professional, and yet she was exceedingly attractive. With her delicate features, mousy brown hair, radiant dress sense, and mischievous yet warm smile, Susie might as well have been the poster girl for her generation. She was the typical 1980s professional working woman. Nevertheless, for six long months, Susie kept her head down and worked hard to gain the respect of her colleagues and to build a solid professional reputation for herself. And by all accounts, she was doing very well in her job. By the summer, Susie was loving her life and advancing in her role at the estate agents with speed and flair. She was overall very happy and content with her life, and it seemed as though she had the whole world at her feet and everything to live for at this point. And we say that all the time, it is such a cliche, but Susie was 25, living and working in London, climbing the greasy career pole, and she really did have so much ahead of her, so much to look forward to. Now, despite all of this good stuff, there was one minor concern for Susie at this point. She had apparently gained a stalker. Confiding in her mum, Diane Lamplew, and later in her uncle, Susie mentioned a man who she was quite intimidated by, and she described him as an unpleasant man, and she said that he kept trying to give her flowers. She didn't name him and assured her mother that it was nothing to worry about, but clearly Susie was concerned enough to mention it. Just days after Susie made this disclosure, at around lunchtime on a bright and sunny day on the 28th of July in 1986, she left her window desk for a 12.45pm house viewing appointment with an unknown male. Susie took her house and car keys with her and a purse, which is understood to have contained around £15 in cash, along with her credit cards, and for reasons unknown, she took her purse and left her handbag behind. In her work diary, she'd written the name of the individual that she was going to meet, and the name that she'd written was Mr Kipper. 
there were no other details. Ten minutes after leaving her desk, Susie was seen waiting outside an empty property on Sherald's Road, which had only been on the market for around a week. At around 1pm, she was joined by a man, now believed to be the infamous Mr Kipper, and minutes later they were seen walking away from the house together. When Susie failed to return to her desk hours later, her employers grew worried, and they alerted the police, who immediately began searching for her. It is almost certain that Mr Kipper was not the man's real name and what exactly happened when Susie met with him remains unknown. Either way, Susie was never seen again. At around 10 o'clock on the night of Susie's disappearance, her white Ford Fiesta was found outside the property on Shorrells Road, which was about half a mile away from her office in Fulham. The handbrake was off, the car keys were missing and Susie's purse and some personal effects were found in a storage pocket in one of the car's doors. The car was in a good condition and there were no signs of a struggle. Witnesses later described seeing a woman who resembled Susie talking with a man near the property before getting into a car. Several eyewitnesses gave their description of the man that Susie spoke to. They described him as tall, tanned and handsome, with thick black hair, and they said he was immaculately dressed, wearing what appeared to be an expensive-looking suit. In fact, he was so well put together that witnesses described him as looking almost aristocratic. The man may have also been holding a bottle of champagne, but this has never been fully verified, although this is quite an important fact that we will come back to later. So I just want to make it clear at this point, it's it's kind of evident really from the eyewitness testimony that although Susie met this man outside a property that was for sale, she wasn't showing him around, it was clearly a, a rendezvous meeting point. CCTV was not really a thing back in the mid-80s, so this description, taken from the memories of the witnesses, is the only one we have of the mysterious Mr Kipper, the man who police now believe was the individual responsible for Susie's murder. The following day, on the 29th of July, there was an article in the London Evening Standard headed, Kidnap Fears for a State Agent's Girl. Within the article, investigators from Scotland Yard reported there was grave concern for Susie's safety. Wednesday the 30th of July, the third day after her disappearance, was Susie's mum's 50th birthday, and the Lamplew family home in south-west London was besieged by journalists. Instead of shunning them, Diana Lamplew, Susie's mother, welcomed the media as a way of helping her to find her daughter. However, just over a week after Susie disappeared, Diana confided to the BBC that she was beginning to realise that her daughter may well be dead. In a radio interview, she said, I can face up to the fact that she's died, but I cannot face up to what has happened in between. That's too much. She went on to explain that Susie suffered from claustrophobia and they knew she would have been terrified to be shut in somewhere. She therefore found it easier to believe that Susie was dead rather than still alive but suffering unimaginably. And there's real echoes here of Stephanie Slater um, and Julie Dart who, who were, well, Julie Dart was killed by Michael Sams. She was kidnapped by him. Uh, this was after Susie Lamplew went missing. And Stephanie Slater was also kidnapped and she worked uh, at an estate agent in Birmingham. And um, she was held in, a, I think it was a wheelie bin for about seven or eight days and she managed to 
really talk to Sam's over that time. And even though he raped her, she later admitted to being raped by him. She didn't want to um, come out with that information while her, her mother was still alive, but she did later say that he raped her. She did manage to get away from him and um, get away with her life. So, um, yeah, there's real echoes of that, but it's quite clear that Michael Sams is, you can't attribute him to, to this because we will go on to see who we think is responsible later. The police officers who were working tirelessly to locate Susie, however, were not ready to give up quite as quickly as Susie's mother, understandably in her case. Following Susie's disappearance, an enormous amount of work was carried out by police in order to trace her. They went door to door in and around the area where she went missing in order to seek potential witnesses. In addition to this, tens of thousands of phone calls were made by investigators following up on tips from the public, and investigators even tested the DNA of several unidentified bodies and skeletal remains that vaguely matched Susie's description. However, despite all their efforts, the Met Police drew a complete blank every time, and the investigation went nowhere. More than seven years of fruitless investigation into Susie's disappearance came and went with little to show for it. And it was around this time that Susie's exhausted parents finally faced the grim truth that their daughter was never coming home, and they urged the authorities to bring things to a conclusion. And so, Susie Lamplew was officially declared dead on the 27th of July, 1993. Her official cause of death is noted as murder. Years later, however, an independent inquiry into the police's initial handling of the case in 1986 poured heavy criticism at the many inconsistencies and errors that were apparently made. To name one of many examples of the so-called mismanagement of the investigation, when the police originally went door-to-door in the very early days after Susie's disappearance, they showed occupants a picture of Susie with her natural black hair. However, lead investigators knew full well that Susie had recently changed her hair colour to blonde. And again, you know, there are echoes with another case here, and that's of Claudia Lawrence, who went missing, I think, in 2009. So uh, the police did something very similar here. Uh, They were armed with photographs that were kind of out of date of of Claudia because she too had changed her hair colour. Additionally, back in 1986, as computer databases weren't yet so widely in use, all evidence was compiled on paper and then filed away in a regular office filing cabinet. And it's said that the Lamplew investigation was of such an unusually large scale that investigators were unable to find the space to store away every shred of paperwork. And it's believed that some of it was misplaced and subsequently lost, which is no surprise given the amount of leads that they were pursuing. Furthermore, it was very clear that the intense media coverage of the case had caused the police to rush their 1986 investigation in the vain hope of getting a quick result and therefore some key areas and people of interest had been overlooked. However, a renewed police investigation in 1998 and another in 2000 failed to find any trace of Susie either. The 2000 investigation did bring about a suspect. In 2002, Scotland Yard named convicted rapist and murderer John Canan as the key suspect in their investigation. And he was considered a prime suspect after it emerged that he had been released from prison just days before Susie went missing and he'd been serving an eight-year jail sentence. 
Now, the suspicion on Canaan was further intensified when it was discovered that the nickname that he was given by his fellow prison inmates was Kipper. It's not known how or why he got that nickname. At the time of Susie's disappearance, Canaan was living in a hostel for newly released prisoners and working as a porter for a nearby theatre prop hire firm. In terms of his physical appearance, Canaan was an almost perfect match to the description of the Mr Kipper figure that witnesses on Shorrell's Road had described. Tall, tanned, handsome, always very smartly dressed. He was also said to be very fond of expensive cars and fine wines, and considered himself something of a wine connoisseur, which would perhaps explain the champagne. Former work colleagues of John Canan later commented to the media that he was a very smooth operator and a notorious pickup artist who loved to flirt and chat up attractive young women wherever he went. Canan was born in 1954 in Sutton Coldfield near Birmingham to a middle class family and by all accounts he had a very normal and stable upbringing and attended a local grammar school. However, when he was just 14 years old, in an inexplicable event which devastated his family, Canan was arrested for aggressively sexually assaulting a woman as she used a phone booth. Due to his young age at the time, he was spared jail and the early signs of a future life as a sexual deviant were left largely unchecked. And I think now it's safe to say that social workers and counsellors would be involved in something like this. But that wasn't so much the case back in the 60s or 70s. After leaving school, Canaan became a second-hand car salesman. Former colleagues who worked with him at a Land Rover showroom labelled him Billy Liar on account of his inability to tell the truth, as well as his creepy and devious nature. And this always reminds me of our friend Paul over at the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Uh, Paul has a, a real thing for these Billy Bullshitter characters and um, has met a few in his time, as I'm sure we all have. So um, if you are listening to this, Paul, that one's for you. In May of 1978, Canaan married his first wife, Jane, in a church ceremony in Birmingham. And around this time, police in Birmingham were investigating a series of violent rapes that were taking place in and around the area where Canaan and his new wife were living. Now, the rapist's modus operandi was to approach houses with for sale signs on the lawn before then knocking on the door and attacking any lone female homeowners that answered. He would force his way into the properties and then violently rape the homeowner. In 1980, not long after his first child had been born, Canaan left his wife for another woman named Daphne Sargent. However, the new relationship turned sour very quickly and when Daphne tried to leave Canaan, he responded by almost beating her to death. In 1981, Canaan's run of violence and sexual deviancy finally ended when he brutally raped a woman in the back of a shop he was trying to rob. He was caught at the scene and swiftly sentenced to eight years in prison. This is the prison sentence that we mentioned earlier. So he was released from Wormwood Scrubs on the 25th of July in 1986. And as I said as well, that is just days before Susie Lamplew vanished. It was just three days before she went missing. Not long after Susie vanished, Canaan moved to Bristol and wasted no time in picking up where he left off with the ladies, posing as a wealthy businessman and dining with young women in expensive hotels. He was also arrested and questioned for raping a housewife in Reading uh, shortly after moving to Bristol after the disappearance of Susie, Um, but there was a lack of evidence which saw him wriggle out of this charge. 
In September 1987, two years after Susie had gone missing, Canan joined a Bristol-based dating agency in a bid to meet more women. He gave the agency a fake name of John Peterson, presumably in a bid to cover up his vicious criminal background, and when he was being prospected by the dating agency, who had no idea that they were talking to a convicted rapist, he was filmed by them being interviewed about what his preferences were for a potential partner. The video, which can be publicly viewed on YouTube, shows Canaan clean-shaven and immaculately dressed in a smart suit, calmly telling the interviewer that he's looking for someone pleasant, natural, relaxed, calm and career-orientated. It's quite difficult, really, to explain why, but in the footage, his body language and general demeanour oozes a sense of arrogance and a kind of sinister intent just radiates from him. His eyes are wide and intense and he rocks back and forth in his chair throughout the interview, even though he does come across as confident, borderline arrogant, and it is really chilling uh, to watch this footage. Not long after the video was created, more dark events occurred that once again thrust the police's spotlight onto wannabe playboy businessman John Canaan and his sinister behaviour. Before we get onto that, let's hear from today's show sponsors. So, as I said, not long after that video was created, more dark events occurred that once again thrust the police's spotlight on wannabe playboy businessman John Canaan and his sinister behaviour. In October 1987, a young woman named Shirley Banks went missing in the Bristol area. And I've seen the Crime Watch reconstruction that went out at the time on YouTube. Uh, if you if you really are struggling for something to watch at the moment or listen to, I can't recommend Red Card 74's channel enough. Um, he's so close to 10,000 subscribers. He's only 50 away. Um, you don't know who this guy is. He um, he's completely anonymous. He's, he has no ego. He never never really engages with the audience, and he wouldn't be bothered whether he gets to 10,000 or not. But I think he deserves it, and um, he's he's uploaded excellent quality episodes of all all of the Crime Watch shows uh, going back to its inception in the, the very early 1980s. And um, yeah, it's amazing to see them, and they are kind of disturbing and scary and fascinating. And it's um, those are the the things that keep me awake at night because I'll watch an episode and spend uh, an hour or so googling the names of those involved and uh, seeing whether whether their crimes have been solved. And usually they haven't been. Um, so, yeah, I saw this reconstruction uh, probably a year or so ago. And, um, yeah, I remember Shirley Banks worked in Debenhams in, in Broadmead, in, in the city centre of Bristol, where I live. And, um, yeah, the city looks exactly the same as it did 35 years ago. So, um, But anyway, yeah, police searched uh, several weeks for Shirley Banks and they found no trace of her. Then, three weeks later, in Leamington Spa, some 80 miles from Bristol, John Canan robbed a clothes shop in broad daylight before attempting to rape two female shop workers. He was caught and arrested shortly thereafter by police, who later linked the crime to the disappearance and murder of Shirley Banks, and her partially decomposed body was found in a remote area of Somerset a few weeks later. Her skull had been savagely caved in with a large rock. 
John Canan was found guilty of Shirley's murder when police discovered the tax disc from her car stuffed in his briefcase. And this was presumably some kind of sick trophy that he kept. And it was also this piece of evidence that linked John Canan with Susie Lampley for the very first time. He had stolen Shirley Banks's car and hidden it in a garage uh, near a flat where he lived in Lee Woods in Bristol. And he'd repainted the car in a hurry and then changed the number plates himself. And he'd changed them from HWL507N to SLP386F. Now, investigators who were extremely familiar with Canan's twisted mindset by now immediately recognised the significance in his choice of lettering, SLP, Susie Lamplew. This may, of course, have been a coincidence, and any court in the land would have ruled the red plate's lettering as entirely inadmissible in court, but detectives working the case knew that Canan, an arrogant sociopath, a violent narcissist, was taunting them. And with that and everything else in mind, it really is no wonder at all that the police believed then and they still believe now that John Canan was the mysterious Mr Kipper that um, Susie had met couldn't remember a fucking name when later interviewed by police former cellmates of Canaan as well as Canaan's ex-girlfriend Daphne Sargent or I think perhaps wife told police that he had been very open about his involvement in Susie's disappearance and they said that he confessed several times that he did in fact murder her however she so John's um, second wife um Daphne and his former cellmate both told the police conflicting stories about where they believed Canaan had buried Susie's body and the police decided to go with a lead that Susie's body may have been taken up to Canaan's mother's house in Sutton Coldfield and buried in the garden and at that time Daphne told the press as soon as I heard about Susie I knew it was John it had all the hallmarks right down to the champagne Former Detective Chief Inspector Brian Saunders told The Independent back in 2011 that he also firmly believed that Canan was a killer, saying, Inquiries showed that he went window shopping for girls. He would spot an attractive girl in an estate agent or a building society and then pursue her. The investigation into Canan's involvement in the case was summarised in an ITV documentary in which a London criminologist for the Met Police hypothesised with presenter Amelia Fox that killer John Canan had dumped Lamplew's body in the River Brent. There was also speculation over the possibility that Susie and Canan had been in a secret relationship that had then turned sour. The hypothesis was that, given Canan's track record for reacting violently in the face of rejection, had set up the meeting at the empty property using the fake name, then ambushed, raped and murdered Susie because she tried to leave him. This theory was given credence by a crucial piece of evidence that was overlooked in the original investigation, and that was the keys to the Shorrells Road property where Susie met Mr Kipper, because it was discovered that the estate agency only had one set of keys for that property, and those keys were later found at the office by police following Susie's disappearance. So that means when Susie left the office, supposedly to show this client the house for sale, she didn't bother to take the keys to that property with her so clearly she had no intention of actually showing Mr Kipper around the property and it would appear that she did know him and it wasn't a speculative inquiry for this guy to to view that property it was just a bit of a cover 
Naturally, this raises many questions and some of the detectives who worked on the original investigation have long since stopped believing that Susie was really meeting a client at all. And they speculate that it's far more likely she was going to meet someone she knew, as I said, and that she just basically fabricated the entry in her diary as a bit of a cover. One such sceptical detective told the media in 2019, It is my firm view that Susie put the Mr Kipper entry in her diary because she had to nip out to meet somebody else and she wasn't supposed to leave the office unattended. I believe the answer to this mystery lies in another appointment that Susie did keep, but that has never been explored. When interviewed by police, Canan strenuously denied any involvement in the case. Nevertheless, police followed up on earlier evidence from Canan's former partner and cellmate, and his mother's garden in Sutton Coldfield was dug up in search for Susie's remains. But despite a deep and lengthy search of the property, nothing of interest was found, and to this day, police believe they have found no concrete evidence to link John Canan to the disappearance and probable murder of Susie Lamplew. John Canan went on trial for the murder of Shirley Banks, but his involvement with Susie's murder could never be proven, and this line of inquiry ended there. Before long, however, investigators uncovered another interesting link that led them to a new suspect. It wasn't until the early 2000s that it sensationally emerged that before becoming an estate agent, Susie had worked alongside a man named Steve Wright on board the infamous QE2 luxury cruise liner. The pair knew each other well and it was claimed that Wright was infatuated with Susie and even tried to chat her up on several occasions. But according to Wright's ex-wife, when Susie vanished and her disappearance hit the headlines, he denied ever knowing her. If the name Steve Wright sounds familiar to you, it's because after he quit working on the QE2, he moved to Ipswich and was later dubbed the Suffolk Strangler after brutally murdering six women in the space of two weeks by choking them to death. He is currently serving a whole life sentence for the killings and his case is covered in a Patreon episode of Seeing Red, so do check that out if you've not already. Detectives have examined this link in detail during several follow-up investigations over the years. However, like John Canan, there simply isn't sufficient evidence to link Steve Wright to the case either. And I think for me, it's a quirky twist of fate that Susie was known to Steve Wright. Um, I, I don't think there's anything in it. I think John Canan is the man here. So John Canan is currently serving three life sentences for the murder of Shirley Banks in October 1987, also for the attempted kidnapping of a woman named Julia Holman the night before Shirley's death, and for the sexual assault of a woman in 1986. So he was prolific as soon as he was released from prison. And don't forget, um, Susie went missing three days after he was released from prison. Um, He will be eligible for parole, disturbingly, in 2023, which is really scary. Um, An unnamed relative of Canans previously told the Daily Mail that they believed he would confess to Susie's death following his elderly mother's death. Speaking to the newspaper back in 2018, they said, I don't think he will say anything until his mother passes away. They were very close. She used to visit him in prison every week, but... I think for me, if he is up for parole in two years, why the hell is he going to admit to this other murder? In March of this year, police said that it was not too late for people with information about Susie's disappearance to come forward. 
Detective Chief Inspector Rebecca Reeve said, whether you saw something that you thought was unconnected at the time or you felt under pressure to protect someone you knew, it is not too late. The passage of time has not weakened our determination to seek justice and to get answers that the Lampley family continue to wait for. They have always been supportive of our efforts to make progress in the investigation and they have shown remarkable strength despite the immense sadness they have endured over the years. It's been more than 35 years since Susie Lamplew disappeared into thin air and her fate remains a mystery to this day. There's little doubt that she is dead but police have never been able to locate her remains or more importantly get to the truth about how she died and who was ultimately responsible even though we pretty much know who it fucking was. Not long after her disappearance, Susie's mother Diana founded the Susie Lamplew Trust, which is pretty famous. It's a charitable organisation that initially aimed to raise money for self-awareness courses for people at work. However, over the years, the trust has become widely regarded as a field expert in loan working and personal safety training, stalking training. Um, And they also do consultancy and campaigning and they have lots of support services. So um, if you work for a small company, company or you're self-employed and you you employ people it's really worth checking out the Susie Lamplew Trust there's so many resources on the website and it's all free uh, to use so it's very accessible Uh, The Trust has a long history of working within the violence against women and girls sector, dealing particularly with the issue of stalking and harassment. The National Stalking Helpline was set up by the Trust in 2010, and that helpline has helped over 45,000 victims since its inception, and it's the only service of its kind globally. So the Trust has gone on to do so many wonderful things in, in Susie's legacy. After Susie's disappearance, Diana Lamplew personally wrote many books. She wrote a lot of the training manuals and articles about stalking and personal safety, uh, focusing particularly on, on women. And she was appointed an OBE and awarded four honorary doctorates for her work. An amazing woman. And very sadly, she died at the age of 75 after suffering a stroke in 2011. And of course, she never did get to the bottom of what happened to her daughter which is incredibly sad. And I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again. We see it so much with parents of children who have been murdered. It's it's so often that we see them not make old bones. And 75 isn't a bad age, of course, but I'm sure I'm sure Diana would have gone on to, to live a long, healthy life, longer than 75 if, if this hadn't have happened. So thank you for listening. Thank you um, for your patience uh, with the delay to this episode. As I said, Bethany's back next week. It's back to normal for us. I'm refreshed. I'm ready to fucking go. And there's loads of shit coming up. So uh, we've got collaborations with UK True Crime Podcast, the UK True Crime, no, the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast, Twisted Britain and Murder Mile. Uh, There's loads, loads of stuff going on. We've also got some merch coming as well. Uh, So keep your eyes peeled on social media. For those, if you don't currently follow us, then you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. I closed down the Twitter account because I hate Twitter and no one gave a fuck about that one. So uh, it's Facebook and Instagram and we're also on YouTube. So do find us there. And then if you can afford to spare us uh, some of your dimes, then please do. Honestly, it makes a huge difference to know that people invest in us and the show and it kind of spurs us on to carry on. So if you want to get involved, head to patreon.com slash seeing red podcast. It takes two minutes to sign up there. 
So until the reunion next week, I will see you then. Bye.